Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Yo, yo, Dad, what's going on? What's going on? How's your week, man? Um, it's been pretty good. Um, back on the road again. Um, I was in Wisconsin for a wedding, and surprisingly, I had a good time. I never thought I'd have a good time in Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah, I've never been. Oh, I know. I've been to, uh, yeah, I've been to Wisconsin once for, like, just to do some recruiting at, like, a little conference for undergrad or something like that. Uh, but I didn't do much, so I didn't get to, like, explore. But, you know, that's good to hear, at least for anybody thinking about going to Wisconsin. It might not be that bad. Yeah, I went to this area called Lake Geneva, and I was just surprised because they had a lot of, um, like, craft food and beverage places. Like, I found this really cool, uh, it's kind of like, they called it the Hive Tap Room, and they use honey to make, um, like, a wine type of beer. It's like a mix between, like, beer and wine. Really cool. It was really good. And then, you know, just some food places that were that were pretty decent, and I was a little surprised, but, yeah. Oh, that's dope. That's dope. Um, yeah. Yeah, how are you? Oh, uh, yeah, my first week, I just had my first week of classes. Semester started, so, you know, just getting into the swing of things. That's about it. Uh, getting... Uh, the celib- getting the students together, rosters together, syllabus together, all that good stuff. Uh, and, you know, this week we'll start, you know, getting into the, the teaching swing of things, actual, you know, lectures or what have you, readings. But, you know, the first week is always cool. It's always chill. I don't do much because I know students are always like seeing they want to take the class, adding, dropping, moving all over the place. So. I just really wait till the second week to get to get going for real, for real. Yeah, but at least you made it through the first one, though. I think <laughs> yeah, that's the, the toughest one. You think it's going to be a good semester? Uh, So far, so good. You know, um, I, yeah, most of my semesters, I always enjoy the fall semester more than I enjoy the spring semester because we always get like more breaks and it's like just a better pace overall. And the spring semester just really outside of like spring break, it just seems like super long and drawn out. <laughs> I mean, there's already a break with Labor Day. Yeah, already got started. <laughs> yeah, students already got a three day weekend after the first week of class. So it's always just like students. It, when, when you have more breaks, you know, everybody's just more refreshed and it's just uh, more energized throughout the semester compared to that spring semester. Man, it's just like, woo. By the time it gets to like, you know, April, everybody's like, all right, when is this over? Me and the students included. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I, we, there's, there's been some quite a few things going on this week, so uh, I guess we can get into old Lord news before we get into today's guest. Yes, we can. Um, so let's start. All right. Hello, and welcome to BHD News, where we give you the most current and eye-opening old Lord news of the week. Join us as we present news that'll make you want to say... Wisconsin, I actually found out that I missed out on a fabulous deal on gas. In one town in Wisconsin called Brookfield, a gas station clerk 
accidentally entered the price of gas as 28 cents instead of two dollars and 89 cents oh wow Yes, the clerk left the gas station without realizing um, their mistake, but customers quickly did, and it ended up being like a mob of people at the gas station filling up their tank for less than $5. Yeah, I was about to say, like, yo, like, 28 cents, I mean, that's like $3 maybe to fill a tank up, like... Mm-hmm. And it's funny, there were videos, one police officer showed up trying to figure out like what was going on. He can be seen in the video saying like, I mean, it's just people getting gas because like people just, he didn't catch on. Uh, but they did finally catch on and the gas station lost thousands of dollars. Oh, I bet they did. I bet they did. <laughs> you know, I guess that can only happen in states where you pump your own gas. Because I mean, in, in Jersey, we we can't pump our own gas. So oh I guess that like, is so interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's it's very interesting. Sometimes it gets irritating when like you're in a rush and you gotta go, and the gas station's kind of busy. But the other times when it's like freezing outside, you're like, ah, yeah, I'm good. Stay else, stay inside with this heat. <laughs> okay, I I could see that, but I'm so impatient yeah. that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so you know, on our last episode, we talked about the great chicken sandwich debate. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, well, a man from my own hometown, Chattanooga, (laughs) decided that he was so upset that he could not get the chicken sandwich that he has decided to sue Popeye's (laughs) for deceptive business practices and false advertisement. Oh my goodness. Yes. Uh, He said that, you know, he lost time and gas going from one Popeye's to the other, trying to find the sandwich, um, and that he's demanding $5,000 because of the big fiasco. (laughs) Oh man. Uh, Hopefully, I mean, if he wins, that's going to open the door to <laughs> a whole bunch of other folks trying to claim the same thing, set that precedent. So I know Popeye's about to be working really hard to make sure this guy does not win this case. But uh, I don't think you can win. I mean, they actually have the chicken sandwiches. They, I don't think it's guaranteed. They never say guaranteed in stock. Uh, if there's something like that, then possibly. But I guess uh, some lawyer picked up the case that so there might be something there, a chance, if anything. Well, you know what? I didn't see anything about a lawyer in the article. Mm. It sounds like this guy is just talking, so we shall okay, see. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you're going up against a major corporation like that, I doubt. Uh, and I doubt he's the first to, to do pull something like this. So that is funny, though. Yeah, that's what he says. Time to take on big corporates. So <laughs> we shall over some see. Chickens. But I'm just like, over some chicken. <laughs> I guess he wanted it that bad. Okay, so this next story, you know, it's a little bit heartbreaking. Um, So a woman, um, so in Arkansas, I guess it had been raining really hard. There were floodwaters, and she was in um, her car when she got swept away by the waters. She makes a phone call to 911. Of course, she's in a panic. She's afraid. And the response by the 911 operator is just heartbreaking. So, you know, 
the pet or the driver is telling the 911 operator where she is saying she you know doesn't want to die please help you know the dispatcher is like you're not gonna die hold on for a minute and I mean of course I'm adding tone to this because yeah. I could just imagine and she's like I'm so scared um she's like the dispatcher just kept saying you're not gonna die I don't know why you're freaking out it's okay I know the water level is high you know the woman just repeating I'm scared I'm scared uh she's like calm down you're gonna use a all your oxygen um and after the woman repeats like i'm just scared i'm sorry i've never been you know in something like this the dispatcher says though this will teach you next time not to drive in water now what makes that so sad is that by the time police officers and firefighters made it to the woman she had actually drowned. Wow, that's sad. Uh, so and so she drowned on the phone with the nine one one operator, telling her like, "You freaking out! Like, you shouldn't have drove in the water anyway." Like, the woman was like, "I didn't see the water." So it's just kind of like, "Dang, you just got you got to be careful with how you're talking to people." Yeah, you do, you do. That's sad, especially that's like the last kind of words that she heard going out too. So mm-hmm. sad. And people are wondering whether it's because that was actually that dispatcher's last shift. The person had already turned in their two-week notice, and that was their very last shift. Mm. So I don't know if they were over it, but, you know, a little compassion would have gone a long way, especially in those final moments. for sure, for sure. That's sad. Sad. Um, And speaking of heartbreaking I'm sure you've heard of yet again another um, mass shooting in Texas yeah yeah so sad man so sad when is it gonna end goodness gracious but go ahead yeah um, so right now um, latest report that I heard I'm pretty sure it'll be updated by the time this episode has aired was one person was killed at least 10 people were wounded, but they said they believe upwards of 20 people. And what happened was uh, um, uh, people in a car just decided to ride by a shopping center and open fire. In Texas? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, no, what I've heard is that I think now um, I've been reading some reports because it's starting to get more of the full story okay. of what's going on. So I think the updated body count, which is sad, is seven people dead. But yeah, about tw- oh, wow. 20 people injured uh, by this. I think even one of the people injured or is a 17th month old girl as well. Oh, wow. Um, and it seems like the story that we're hearing, and again, by the time this episode airs, it'll be all probably more details. But it seems like the Texas troopers uh, actually, he got stopped, like a traffic stop. Mm. And then he kind of pulled away and like shot at, shot his rifle at the police, pulled off, and then started shooting at random people as he was driving off. Took over oh. a like a mail truck, um, like hijacked a mail truck, got in that, was shooting people, and then uh, the got into a shootout with the police at like some kind of like parking lot, and then they wind up police wind up killing him in that shootout as well. Oh, that was way worse than, uh, <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was like a whole thing, um, a wild chase, all this kind of stuff, and he just went ham. Uh, and what's also, uh, Texas, man, um, 
So what's also interesting about this, and I just don't get it, is that this comes on the heels of Texas actually uh, releasing new like gun laws that were going into effect the same day. But the new gun laws, because they've actually had mm. four of the 10 deadliest mass shootings in modern U.S. history that they've happened in Texas. And so their gun measures, though, are actually loosening up gun restrictions and would allow for more weapons on school grounds and apartments and places of worship. So that is Texas response to the increased mass shootings is, well, let's put more guns in these places. Yeah. Uh, it's just, I just don't, I just don't get it, man. I just don't get it. Because when you think of the places with the mass shooting, I mean, four of the ten in Texas, you've had some in Florida, you've had some in the Midwest. I mean, these are places with really, really lax gun laws. <laughs> I mean, there's, I think there's a direct correlation here. Um, you know, you have anomalies like places in Cali and stuff like that, but it's like the looser the gun laws, it seems like the increased likelihood of these kind of mass shootings with that kind of weaponry. And now Texas response is like, let's loosen them up even more now. So, oh, oh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, that's crazy. The opposite response that we should have. Mm -hmm. We do not need more people out here with guns. Yeah, not at all. Not at all. So, you know, again, tired of saying this, but definitely positive vibes and prayers to the victims of this shooting out there in Texas. Hopefully we don't see any more of this, but that just doesn't sound promising anymore. I agree. Whew. Well, those are my oh lord news stories. Okay. Um, I don't know if you have anything to. Add. Um, there's a couple. One is you know we've talked about in this podcast before with certain listening devices, um, like with the Google listening device. Um, what is it called? I always forget the name. Siri? No, not Siri. That's Apple. Uh, Alexa, right? Um, yeah, Echo, uh, Echo Alexa. Alexa, all of them. That's Amazon. Um, and so, you know, recently Apple has released an apology saying we're sorry for this. They've halted like all their kind of research because Siri has the people like there are researchers who are actually hearing the private conversations of people because Siri, if you have Siri on, it's usually always listening because you can just be like, hey, Siri, whatever it is. And then it starts talking. Um so as a result, you know, one of the things Apple did is that they apologize. And now they're going to have, I think, on a recent update with their software that users can now have the option to turn it off. Like have they still have Siri listening, but make, making it so that Apple's not allowed to keep the data or like use it for research purposes and stuff like that. And like increase the privacy with settings with Siri. So uh, it's good. It's good. It's good. Not sure if, you know, you still if you fully believe those things, but. Uh, I guess having that option makes it a, a bit less anxious, I guess, when you're using these things. Yeah, I guess we'll find out after the fact. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if they're still recording. Yeah. You know what? Speaking of that, you know, have you've heard of Ring, right? The doorbells? Yeah. Uh-huh. Actually, they are starting to partner with police departments to have people to like use people's footage to explore like potential crimes interesting yes like uh, uh yeah that can go so many ways uh i guess you would have to like if, if police if ring the company or whoever just giving footage away that is clearly uh that should be some kind of violation but if you get permission from the owners of that doorbell 
device then maybe um but yeah we gotta we gotta be careful with those kind of things <laughs> i do think they ask for permission but it's kind of like they guilt people it's kind of like uh police want footage from you know your camera do you mm-hmm. want to be you know help with justice or it was some random like wording that yeah. like guilt people into like trying to do it but yeah um they did have to clarify because people did think that like police were like constantly monitoring their cameras yeah yeah and i think it's also good for people to know they don't have to if they don't want to because um sometimes i think they can be having these conversations they won't it won't come off as questions sometimes i'm sure it'll be like yo you have this we need it um and you know sometimes people are afraid to say no to the police so Mm-hmm. Have that option, but these are things definitely to, to, to pay attention to for sure. Uh, as technology increases, and we'll be more reliant on it, and how it can be used by you know things like law enforcement agencies. Agreed. There's another story um, that was causing headlines too. Um, it was a local Oklahoma TV anchor, uh, a white woman by the name of Alex Hudson. Uh, she pretty much during a uh, it was a segment where they were talking about a gorilla. Okay, so you probably already know where this is going at an Oklahoma zoo, uh, city zoo. And towards the end of the segment, Mm -hmm. she said to her black male co-host that the gorilla kind of looks like you. (laughs) Godly. Uh, There was extreme amount of backlash for this, as you can imagine. Her black male co-host name is Jackson Hackett, uh, Jason Hackett. I'm sorry. And uh, and, you know, once social media had to saw that clip, they went ham. Then the very next day, she apologized uh, a very tearful apology, uh, again, which also wasn't received well by most folks, too. Um, yeah, I just, you know, just just stop the madness. You know what? Although you said the apology wasn't received very well from a lot of people, one disappointing response to that apology was T.I. Oh, what did he say? He was like, um... I think he said something to the fact that he, you know, thought the apology was sincere. He said, because does kind of look like a, and used the like gorilla emoji. Oh my God. Oh my God. Come on, T.I. He got to know better. You got to do better than that, bro. Come on, man. This, yeah, that's not good. That's not good at all. But, you know, when a white people just going to stop, you know, referring to black people as monkeys, when are you going to get it? You know, that's just something that's just a big no, no. You are a public personality. You are on air. There are some things you just have to be conscious of. And referring to your black co-host as a gorilla is uh, should never even have happened. So, you know, we're still people are still learning today's day and time. Uh, it's just something um, that we should have figured out a long time ago, a long time ago. Um, so, uh, two more quick stories. Uh, one, uh, we were, uh, there was a while back ago, there was this viral video going around this white man who pretty much, he punched this black girl, uh, 11 year old black girl. Um, I think they were outside of a mall. He punched her right in the face. And, uh, I guess the case has been, has concluded and, he has not been sentenced to any jail time, but he has been sentenced to a racial justice workshop instead. Uh, again, this is like absurd. A grown man punching a 11 year old black girl dead in the face gets a racial justice workshop for assault. Of a child. It's wild to me. First of all, he should have got both. 
Yeah. It, it's like if he was only going to get one, it should have been jail. Yeah. But if you're going to try to teach sensitivity, punish and give the training. Like you violently assaulted an 11 year old. Like It's not like a, uh, in his own video. I don't understand how that just, you know, you kind of get a slap on the wrist. And that's when we talk about racial um, sensitivity training, I don't think, you know, we're trying to excuse uh, racial violence in any capacity. I don't think that's what it's used for. Oh, you can go around and, you know, violently assault racial minorities. And then, you know, as a result, we'll give you a workshop on, on how not to do that. That's not that's not safe for black folks. But this all. is exactly why people feel that black lives don't matter outside of the black community, because it's like people can do things to black people and get away with it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it that sends messages to black people about their value in society when crimes against them are not punished in the same way it, as if a man of color punched an 11-year-old white girl. Mm-hmm. Come out like, would that have received a slap on the wrist? No, nor would it have deserved a slap on, on yeah. the wrist. Yes, it just doesn't. I mean, yeah, either way you look at it, but that's something that should not be a slap on the wrist worthy for sure. And uh, the final thing I'll talk about is uh, this recent study came out. It's been making headlines a couple of days ago and been surfacing on a bunch of pub, uh, you know, media platforms. Is a recent study was published. Excuse me. Um, a recent public was stu- a recent study was published, and it's actually the largest ever study that looks at the role of genes in homosexual behavior. So there's a lot of debate about this particular study, and what the major findings are are of this study is that there's no evidence that a gay gene, quote unquote, a gay gene exists. Really, the researchers were trying to see if you know, the debate of whether you can be born gay or not, that whole conversation, if there's any kind of scientific evidence to support this. Uh, essentially what they did was that they looked at, um, uh, you know, those, uh, what was it? They looked at two, like a DNA 23andMe and another like biobank called UK Biobank. And they looked at, you know, they, they, they got permission, of course, from some of the participants and asked them, uh, along with a questionnaire, looked at their markers. And they found that roughly, you know, less than 1% of any kind of genetic, of the five like genetic markers that they found may potentially be linked, can actually, you know, actually have some kind of influence on sexuality. Um, uh, there's been some critique from other researchers saying be- the database they use, they only use about 5.5% of the UK biobank and 1.5% of 23andMe's customers. So they're saying that the sample size, although it's the largest ever done like this, mm-hmm. it is still a fairly small sample size. And so can it be, um, you know, generalized in its capacity? The researchers said they understand that this is just the first of its kind and they hope, you know, other people take it and move forward and hope hopefully they do more research like this to maybe increase the reliability or see if there's any validity with their findings. But mm. um, so, yeah, this yeah. is out there. So I'm sure y'all will be seeing a little bit more conversation in the week in the during this week for sure, because it came out over the weekend. Yeah. Do you have some thoughts on the findings? Um. Well, you know, this is not I'm not a geneticist. So I, it's hard for me to I looked at it and, you know, I tried to look at the uh, debate as far as what people in the field are saying, you know, how much can we take 
uh, these results seriously. And, you know, some people are saying that the, the, it's a good mix of environment and genetics. And they're saying that these genes that they've found or identified are no different than any other genes uh, as far as influencing like behavior. Uh, so, you know, saying that, you know, it's, it's really, and, and one of the, also the, I don't know if it's a critique or points made is saying that some people are saying this is potentially also a good thing because they said, if you find a gene that people would try to actually use that whole debate of like trying to quote unquote, fix people, like, oh, we marked it. This is an abnormality. Let's now we see this marker. Now we can put interventions in to make sure this is, doesn't happen. So some people are actually saying it's a good thing to say that there's no actual, you know, biological differences. It's just more environmental based and, you know, a learned behavior. Uh, see, I, you know what? I was wondering if that would lead to the opposite to say, oh, they aren't, you know, gay people aren't born this way. Therefore, we can fix them. Yeah, I just yeah. I was thinking like, you know, they'll just say, oh, like you said, this is learned behavior. This is whatever behavior. Therefore, we can convert people like so I just it kind of goes to like how people how other people might use science for their own purposes Mm -hmm. and I think that is what bothers me because any argument that leads to trying to change who people are not with it yeah yeah for sure for sure so you know i i'm just reporting the findings uh this is what's out you know for people interested in this kind of work go ahead and check it out for yourself um it's in a bunch of media outlets now and i'm sure that number will increase and hopefully we'll hear the researchers other people come actually like talk about it speak about it on some of these platforms so so people can get a clear understanding of what the findings are and the limitations of the study because I'm sure there are some as well and you know you want people because it can be a very scary thing of people trying to like you said either way you can flip these findings to use it for whatever motive uh, you're trying to move forward with so gotta be careful um, gotta be careful um, uh, so you know a couple things oh well one thing is uh, did you see that Coco golf match and um, Naomi Osaka I did not see the match. I did see afterwards where everyone was like, you know, cheering for them because I guess they had a moment. Yeah. Yeah. They had a moment. I mean, because it was, you know, a highly uh, anticipated match. And, you know, Coco Golf is 15. Naomi's 21. They're both really great. But, you know, Coco's still young. I mean, it's even Naomi's 21. It's still a six year difference between the two, uh, which is pretty, you know, fascinating as well. But I mean, yeah, they had a good match, you know, pretty much Naomi beat up on a 15 year old. But, you know, Coco played very well the first set. And then Coco started crying towards the end and Naomi went over to encourage her. And they both did the uh, Naomi told him, let's do the post game interview together so people can see and hear what you're saying. And, you know, it's been going viral, you know, the show like. Naomi, both of them just empowering each other. You know, they're both definitely future stars. You know, Naomi's already a star in the league and both are black women and just seeing. And it was funny because even as I was watching it live, the announcers were like, oh, we've never seen anything like this before, you know. Um, and we and Serena did that last year with Naomi as well, like trying to uplift her and empower her when Naomi was crying, even after Naomi won. Uh, but I just feel like, you know, that's just how dope black women are. You know, this is why you probably never seen it before, because this is how we do each other. We empower each other they, and they uplift each other. And it's good to see them, you know, setting the trend in the mode of like good sportsmanship and that, we, you know, we're not going to be just at odds. You know, I love mm-hmm. you. And she shouted out her parents, uh, you know, Coco's parents and everything. It was a really good moment. And I'm glad to see that 
we, you know, they did that on such a big stage. Yeah, and it was genuine, up. too. That's what's up. Yep, yep. All right, so, so Daph, I got some questions for you. Okay. Okay. Are you a fan of holistic health? Of course. Do you like hip-hop? Of course. Do you like tea? <laughs> yes. Okay, are you also a fan of black women? I mean, is that even a question? <laughs> How about black women who are business owners? Absolutely. All right, then I got some good news for you, Dev. Okay. This week's episode is sponsored by a company that fits all the above. This episode is brought to you by Ivy Tea Company, a black-owned, hip-hop-inspired herbal tea company that provides herbal tea and herb-infused honeys for the culture. So if you're a fan of holistic health and tired of whitewashed teas, visit ivyteas.com to order you some unique hip-hop-inspired flavor teas and honey like Shmoney, Nips Tea, Redbone, Side Piece, and more. And guess what, Dav? What? If you visit IVT.com and also click the link below for a limited time only, you can use the discount code BHDPod to receive a discount on your order. So hurry over now and support black businesses while sipping on some tea for the culture at IVT's.com and use the discount code BHDPod today. Yeah, I really am going to check it out. I do drink tea. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hopefully everybody will check it out. Um, uh, so, so yeah, y'all go out there, get some, get some tea. It's pretty good. Hip hop inspired tea owned by a black woman. Uh, you know, check it out. Use the discount code, code for sure. Get you discount on some tea. Sip on it as you listen to this episode. It's hip hop infused. And what better way to bring us into our first interview of the month with black women and hip-hop discussions. Yes. <laughs> Today we are speaking with the host of the Bottom of the Map podcast. Yeah, this so is a dope podcast. So excited. Mm-hmm. We were glad they really took out the time to come join us um, because, you know, the podcast definitely has been growing for good reason with uh, a journalist, Christina Lee and Dr. Regina Bradley. And they both are really hip-hop Connoisseurs, if yeah, you will. Enthusiasts. Um, yes. <laughs> Experts in the field uh, from the journalistic perspective and the academic perspective. And just listening to their podcast episodes is always a lot of fun because, you know, they always intertwine the music. Mm-hmm. while they're over, you know, the content of what they're discussing. So it's really fun. We got to actually bring them on to talk about some of the hot topics of hip hop. Because, uh, you know, Daph and I, we've stabbed at this before. But, you know, we're no experts in this field. We don't yes. study it like they do. Uh, so it was really awesome to have them come on and, and join us and really drop some some cool and dope gems about, you know, what they do in the, the area of hip hop for sure. Agreed. Agreed. And yes. it's just dope to see black women discussing this, too. It, especially, you know, after comments by, you know, JD, you know, about women in hip hop, which we will discuss. It was good to have women address issues in the current state of hip hop. Yeah, because when you think about like even like me, I listen to a lot of popular podcasts or hip hop influence podcasts and it's nothing but men. It's predominantly men always talking about these topics. And uh, it's just really refreshing to see, uh, you know what? Women actually have a stake in the game, too, and talk about this very well, probably or maybe even better than men do. So it's good that they have this platform started and may not be the, the last. Hopefully they are the first, but not the last and they continue to grow and see more like it. But, you know, we urge you all to definitely check them out and we just love to see that mix of of you know academics and hip-hop put together mm-hmm. without further ado let's get a uh, bottom of the map podcast popping and we'll catch up with y'all afterwards 
Today, BHD is joined by Christina Lee and Dr. Regina Bradley, hosts of the Bottom of the Map podcast, which explores Southern hip-hop culture and its impact on the world. Christina Lee is a journalist based in Atlanta. She writes about hip-hop with a focus on how it molds Atlanta's cultural identity and impacts pop culture at large. Dr. Regina Bradley is an assistant professor of English and African Diaspora Studies at Kennesaw State University and a former Nasir Jones hip-hop fellow at Harvard University. Her research and expertise include post-civil rights African-American literature, hip-hop culture, race, and the contemporary U.S. South. During our conversation, we discussed the history and significance of Southern hip-hop, the role of hip-hop in highlighting social and political issues of our time, and the current state of women in hip-hop. Welcome, Christina and Dr. Bradley. Hey there. Hello. (laughs) Thank you for having us. Nah, thank you for joining us. Today's conversation, you know, Daphne and I in the past have had a lot of conversations, well, you know, a good amount of conversations talking about hip-hop and discussing it in our own various ways, but, you know, a lot of the times we really don't know exactly what we're talking about. You know, we're casual listeners and we try to keep up with some of the things that go on with pop culture, but it's great to have two experts on here to really give us a deep dive in some of the topics and things that we've tried to address in this podcast in the past. Uh, But before we get into that, I think it'd be great to just, you know, for you both to guys tell our listeners a little bit about yourselves and what motivated you to team up for Bottom of the Map podcast. Okay. Um, I'm Dr. Regina Bradley. I'm assistant professor of English and African Diaspora Studies at Kennesaw State, right outside of the A, Atlanta. Um, I'm also an alum Nazir Jones Hip Hop Fellow at Harvard University. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> hey guys, um, my name is Christina Lee. I moved to Atlanta from Maryland in 2010. And since I was already interested in music, like once I got to Atlanta, I saw pretty much what was going on around me, which at the time was an already burgeoning hip hop scene. Um, so that's how I fell into music journalism that specifically focuses on hip hop with a focus on Atlanta hip hop, if not Southern hip hop. And um, our motivation for actually starting Bottom of the Map was um, that we actually got approached to do it, which is pretty remarkable in of itself and just like completely unexpected. Um, But what had happened was that uh, Regina and I got invited onto WABE, which is Atlanta's NPR affiliate. Um, on their show called City Lights, which is their arts and culture show featuring an OG classical music critic by the name of Lois Reitzes. Um, So Lois had invited us onto the show to discuss Childish Gambino's This Is America. And uh, behind the scenes, well, actually at WABE, if you are around in daytime hours, you'll see that like everybody in the station's tuned into the station to make sure everything is still all good. And so unbeknownst to us, the VP of radio at the time, Christine Dempsey, was tuning in and she heard us and she heard that we like kind of know what we're talking about and that we kind of like each other. And um, as it turned out, WABE had done its own focus group testing to see what they could do better. And what they had found was that listeners of color in particular um, tuned into the station, liked what the station had to offer, but didn't necessarily felt seen in its listenership. Um, so Christine wrote us a very cryptic email you know, asking Regina and I whether we had time to talk about a potential podcast. And that conversation was actually in May of 2018. And so like a full calendar year later, we actually launched Bottom of the Map. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's really awesome. Um, 
So I just wanted to go back to uh, something that Dr. Bradley mentioned, that you were Nasir Jones Fellow at Harvard. Um, I know in your academic career as a professor at Kennesaw State, you focus on hip hop culture. I've looked up some of your syllabi and some of your articles. And I just wanted to talk for a second about the significance of studying hip hop in academic spaces. Like, you know, why is that important? And another thing, we try to provide our audience with insight into how academia can be um, an outlet to just pursue your passion. So I guess, can you talk a a little bit about merging your career with your passion for hip hop. So what had happened was um <laughs> um so I I did my undergrad at Albany State University in Albany, Georgia. Um and I was an English major. Um so I've always had a thing for reading and writing. It's just always been my outlet. I get to graduate school and I decide to take a Seminar on African American popular music with uh, Dr. Portia Moltsby, and who is like the godmother of Black music studies. You know what I'm saying? Um, and we got to a, you know, we got to a unit on hip hop or whatever. And most of the conversations about hip hop centered around New York or the West Coast. And as a Southerner, I was like, so I don't listen, really listen to none of them folks. Um, <laughs> they are currently not in my rotation. Um, where is the scholarship on Southern hip hop artists? And she basically kind of gave me the challenge. She's like, what are you going to do about it? I mean, you know, I'm a master's student at the time. I'm like nothing at the moment. I'm just trying to get out this class, which is a very real, um, a real thing. Um, but then, you know, I started my PhD in English at Florida State and uh, my advisor, uh, Dr. David Eichert, um, really kind of talked me out of another project that I thought I wanted to do. Um, and we kind of talked about this on uh, a, a recent episode of Bottom of the Map, <laughs> where I was like, they wanted me, I thought I wanted to do something on like black women in the Southern black church. And uh, apparently Dr. Iker saw through my heathenism and was like, nah, you ain't going to do that. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) so um, you, you really seem to shine with hip hop. Um, And that was my first uh, inkling of, oh, I really can't study hip hop as an academic uh, form of inquiry. You know what I'm saying? Um, But it wasn't until I was done with the PhD, did the, I mean, like I did like a, I feel like it was a surface level kind of analysis of how hip hop aesthetics help us think about race and culture in the 21st century. Um, I still haven't touched that dissertation, by the way. Folks are like, oh, this book you're working on is your dissertation. I'm like, no, no, it's not my dissertation. It, it has not seen a lot of days since 2013. So there's that. Um, and ultimately I um, was really interested in Outkast because they were my favorite group coming up and um, everybody was talking about Nas's Illmatic at the time in the 20th anniversary and I'm like well what about Outkast their 20th anniversary is here too so what's up with that mm-hmm. and ultimately that led to um, a digital humanities project called Outkast of Conversations which was really just me and some of the folks that I really admire and adore in the academy and around just talking about Outkast um and that led to me writing a book proposal of the book that I'm currently working on, Chronicling Stankonia. Um, and I mean, like, ultimately, like, I was like, like, why did you decide to apply for a Harvard fellowship? I was desperate. Like, I had no job options. <laughs> I was adjuncting. Um, and I was just kind of just like, you know, well, I don't know if we can cuss on this podcast, but I really was kind of just like, fuck it. You know what I'm saying? Because I was like, um, I'm, I'm desperate. 
So I got my first tenure track job offer, and then not even a month later, I got the offer to go to Harvard to study. Um, so yeah, I mean, like you know, in terms of, of passion, you have to be able to to stick with it. Um, and I think that that's what a lot of folks kind of forget is that you know you can be passionate about something, but that doesn't mean that you won't get frustrated. Uh, I was frustrated a lot. I still get frustrated, but. Um, just being able to to really stick with what you're trying to do is really important. No, no, it really is. And I'm, and I'm glad that, you know, this is sometimes what we like to have people on talking about, you know, in academia, you can create a space to have that kind of work, uh, things that you're passionate about and research about and, you know, make a living off of that. And so I think, you know, you're a good um, example of, of, of that. Um, you know, one of the things, you know, one of the questions we have we can get to now since you mentioned it is that, you know, with both of you, um, your writings and your research have spent a good amount of time covering and writing about the group outcasts. So, you know, what are some things from your, your writings and your research that make this group in particular so critical to the growth of Southern, Southern hip hop? And culture. They were the first introduction for mainstream hip hop by coastal hip hop that the South actually could do hip hop. You know what I'm saying? I'm not. I'm not saying that Outkast was the first Southern hip hop group because that's a lie and a half. You know what I'm saying? They're not even the first hip hop group out of Atlanta, but they were the first group to be recognized as a Southern hip hop group because they. Uh, stayed true to their roots. They didn't try to emulate um, what was coming out of New York. You know what I'm saying? There was definitely some distant cousin kinship with West Coast and G-Funk. You know what I'm saying? But um, they were the first to get, you know, they paid their dues. You know what I'm saying? And it's just really fascinating to me how when folks study hip-hop culture, they seem to conveniently forget about this whole big-ass region uh, below the Mason-Dixon line in their conversations. And as a Southerner, um, you know, I try not to take offense, but I take offense. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I, you want me to learn all the history about New York hip hop and West Coast hip hop, but y'all don't even want to get a little bit of the history about why the South is significant to uh, hip hop culture as we know it, especially now. Um, so that was, you know, that was part of it. Um, the other part of it is that uh, their articulations of Southernness, particularly Southern blackness, are... Um, iconic in terms of how they, they're constantly evolving. So the way that they talk about the South on the first album, Southern Playlistic Cadillac Music, is different than what they talk about or even how they address Southerness in their last album. Like, I don't really count Ottawild as their last album. I've kind of stopped with Speaker Box and the Love Below. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. But, yeah, I mean, like, ultimately, that's what, um, for me, that's what it was. And then ultimately... You know, on a personal level, Outkast was my first introduction to what Southern, what the South could sound like. Because I was about to start high school when Equimini came out. And um, I knew that if I wanted to survive high school, especially as a freshman, then I had to know who these folks were. Because I didn't, I wasn't trying to do the whole isolated thing. Um, but I came out all right, though. I came out all right. So <laughs> there's that. Um. So yeah, every everything that Regina said, first and foremost, I think the only other thing that I would add to that as the reason why I keep revisiting the Dungeon Family catalog from the time that I essentially moved to Atlanta up until I think earlier this year when I had profiled Cool Breeze is that um, the Dungeon Family, because of you know, just how robust the collective was, but also how creative these folks really were, they really helped to sort of map out um, Southern hip hop's past, present, and future, like if that makes any sense. Um, so with Outkast and actually um, with the formation of Organized Noise, which is the production trio of Rico Wade, Wade Murray, 
and uh, Sleepy Brown, it's like you have a direct connection to Atlanta's past music lineage um, because Sleepy Brown's father was from Brick, which was a formative funk band here in Atlanta. So you have that connection and, you know, it helps that Sleepy Brown also really sort of evokes like, you know, that black exploitation, like Curtis Mayfield's sound. And then, um, you know, once you like dig into the, like, you know, the Dungeon Family's catalog, you see that even with like, you know, Purple Ribbon All-Stars, they were really sort of like helping to propel like the Krug movement forward. And we all know that like Cool Breeze is like proto-trap, you know, like we like the anniversary, the 15 year anniversary of trap music, you know, passed recently. Um, and so while folks may argue that that was the inception of trap music, if you just go back to East Point's greatest hit, you could see where T.I. might have gotten his influence. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, and something that you um, you all mentioned, or you mentioned a, a lot of classics. I'm from Tennessee. I'm from Chattanooga. I grew up on a lot of uh, the music and the songs that you all mentioned. And, you know, something that has always bothered me is I felt like Southern hip hop didn't necessarily always get the respect that it deserved. And, you know, that's kind of something that you echoed. So I guess in a ode to Southern hip hop, um, I like to hear you all's top five Southern hip hop <laughs> tracks of all time. No, ma'am, no, ma'am, no, ma'am. This was not part of the agreement. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Top, like just tracks? Uh, yeah, tracks are groups. It's, it's okay if you say groups. Oh, um, okay. These, these, we, we were, what's hilarious is that me and Chris were just talking about lists and how we despised them yesterday, and here we are the next day doing lists. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> here we are. Here we are. Here we are. Um, I might, mine might be a little bit of a mix, um, and then it's not necessarily in order, but um, Outkast clearly is on my top five. You got to put them together. They a duo. You know what I'm saying? Um, and uh, I love 3-6 Mafia um, just because 3-6 Mafia, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Tear the Club Up still knocks <laughs> 20-something years later. Um, Goody Mob, obviously. Um, I'm a Benny girl, so Phil Mob's on that list. Tip and Jeezy are my folks. Okay. Honorable okay. mention, though. Honorable mention is is definitely uh, Missy Elliott. We claiming her because Portsmouth is country as hell and it's southern of Richmond, so she's southern. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to, to put that out there. I think that she was, you know, she's just really dope, too. So right there. Those Okay, first of all, this is a really high-pressure situation, and I don't appreciate it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, But these are the tracks that just, like, immediately came to mind, like, at this particular moment. Um, And I think the reason why is because I tend to invoice to Southern Hip Hop a lot. So this may have just been, like, the last five tracks that I have heard from the invoicing playlist. Um, But the tracks that immediately came to mind, uh, TM101 by Jeezy, you know, um, just that whole album, really. Um, I thought of Creatine by Cool Breeze. I thought of Rich Boys. Throw some D's on that. Um, Crime Mobs, Knuck If You Buck. And um, uh, this was really tough, too, because Clip... Well, okay, I'll start by saying this. Clips' grinding was so formative to me in addition to Missy Elliott. Like, I grew up in the DMV, and I think during my high school years, I really just thought that Missy Elliott was from outer space, first of all. So, like, I didn't even, like, connect... You know, that she was like from Virginia. But when Clips came out, it was like, whoa, this is a group from Virginia. So that really meant a lot to me. And just to throw, you know, like a new cat out there, um, I really like the new Maxo Cream album just from top to bottom called Brandon Banks. I think it's so, so good. 
Awesome. Yeah, thanks. Uh, you know, I promise we won't have any more questions dealing with lists because we don't want you guys to be the first guest to actually hang up on us doing a podcast. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, getting back to an episode from uh, we, one of the episodes we recently listened to from your podcast, uh, No Justice, No Peace. Um, it stood out to Daphne and I because, you know, we've had a lot of conversations dealing with politics and forms of protest, especially when it comes to, you know, our culture in a lot of ways. And we understand that hip hop has been a part of that major narrative as far as, you know, music in general when it comes to black folks and protests and, and fighting oppression. And, you know, I think sometimes there's this debate of whether or not hip hop still plays that important role as far as pushing our agendas forward, whether politically, socially, et cetera, as it has in the past. And I know you mentioned earlier that you guys are brought on to talk about This Is America, which de- which is definitely a, you know, top of the line, one of the videos and, and, and songs that got a lot of uh, publicity for its message. Um, but in general, how do you guys feel about today's hip hop and them contributing, hip hop artists contributing to the conversation and narrative of pushing our agenda forward and, and forms of protest? I mean, ultimately, I think that we need to understand that, uh, well, I feel like there's a conflict. I feel like there's a conflict between what prote- what we were taught coming up that protest was you know what I'm saying like the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s was such an integral part and how we think about modern protests for for black folks in particular Um, and you have this younger generation of folks who are moving away from that model because I mean that model is kind of outdated you know what I'm saying Um, and they're like well it doesn't speak to this current moment that we're in even though there are definitely connections and because folks are throwing out the blueprint so to speak and creating their own new ways to articulate their frustrations and concerns hip hop is often the soundtrack um, to do that so something that I often teach my students is that, you know, protest isn't always something that is uh, immediately recognizable as as angry and struggle. Right. Like protest also is joy, um, being happy because folks don't know what to do with happy black folks. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, like the ideas of joy and, and pleasure and protest are definitely part of that conversation. And I think that this new this newest wave of hip hop. Um, is reflecting that part of the of the struggle. You know what I'm saying? Like, you have to stay motivated to stay in the struggle. Well, how do you do that? You have to find outlets for concern. Um, the flip side of that is that I think, too, in addition to uh, the role of social media and how we articulate what's going on in terms of hip-hop as a form of protest, um, if Chuck D was talking about how, you know, hip-hop is black people CNN, then that can be amended to be like social media and hip-hop is black people CNN. You know what I'm saying um, to the point now where you have major media outlets who are referring to Twitter uh, before actually as a, like referring to Twitter as a source of, of information as a valid source of information um, and using that to kind of talk about or provide commentary um, but then there's also something else that's really interesting that's going on too in terms of of you know where the artists fit into the, to those more traditional conversations about what protest is and what protest isn't so I'm thinking about like a 21 Savage for example and also an ASAP Rocky you know what I'm saying so like you know his comments about the Black Lives Matter movement really came and bit him in the ass later you know what I'm saying like you know you're like oh it doesn't have anything to do with me but yet you get in trouble in Sweden and then you know you have your folks who are like you know pray for asap let them out and i'm like how do you forget that you said that this doesn't work for you because that doesn't have nothing to do with you you know what i'm saying and it's like you can't just pick and choose what part of the struggle you want to be part of 
the flip part of that is like with a 21 Savage, um, you know, he's talking also about, um, I mean, like he, he talks about like the immigration reform policy, which is, which is highly problematic. That's me being extremely nice about it is highly problematic. Um, and then him going through a similar process. So it's like, you can't get away from it. Um, you know, no matter what your station is, um, it, it'll affect you somehow, some way. And I think that hip hop is the way for folks to articulate those frustrations and concerns. Um, and that's also a way for folks to hear them articulating their frustrations and concerns because, you know, contrary to popular belief, hip hop is America's music. Now it's the new jazz. You know what I'm saying? Like it's everybody has, is, is pulling from it, contributing to it, benefiting from it, commodifying it. Um, and that's why it continues to remain central to these types of conversations. Yeah. I think the only other thing I would add to that is that, um, is that with hip hop in particular, I think around the time that, uh, Trayvon Martin had died. I think people were looking to hip hop in particular to come out with some sort of like protest anthem, like their own version of a We Shall Overcome. And I think the way that hip hop has addressed it since then is that while there have been songs that have spoken directly to the frustration and the anger and the anxiety after those, um, after those incidents, like I'm thinking about J. Cole's Be Free and uh, Kenneth Whalum's Might Not Be Okay with Big Crit, um, I think hip hop also has a like hip hop now has a really interesting way of weaving in mentions of these events with like um, just into other songs that might not otherwise have to do with that particular subject matter. Uh, 21 Savage is like a really good example of someone who might just like throw in a mention about how kids shouldn't be held at the border while performing the song a lot on The Tonight Show. And I'm also thinking about how Migos on their song Cultural National Anthem, you know, makes a passing mention to, you know, Colin Kaepernick, like taking a knee. Uh, but these are acts in particular that don't like get looked at as like, quote unquote, woke because they might dabble more in the trap than, you know, go out and protest. Um, so I think, you know, just as Regina was saying, like protest kind of takes on all these different forms. And I think um, we're starting to see that through hip hop today. Yeah, for sure. I think, um, you know, guess a follow up question to that, too, is we've seen that. Um, okay, let me figure out how one phrases. You know, we've seen that. I think sometimes we put too much responsibility on hip hop artists when engaging in these conversations. I mean, it is an art form and I feel like people should be able to express the art in however they see fit, whatever is most comfortable to them. Um, but because a lot of, I think because of the access we have with social media and things of those lines, we sometimes expect, have this expectation for artists to speak out or either think the same way as I guess the most folk when it comes to certain uh, political or social issues. Um, but then I guess my question is, you know, when we talk about this and look at this and, and the experiences of black folks when it comes to police brutality, immigration, everyday lived experiences, um, do you think that artists should speak on these things um, when it comes to things like politics? I mean, I'm thinking of someone like, you know, uh, Kanye West, who when he made his comments about George Bush, he was praised. And then on the flip side, when he's made comments related to Trump, people are trying to cancel him. And, you know, 
me personally, when I hear certain artists speak on certain things, I really, you know, I take it with a grain of salt because I'm like, you're, you're not well read on these issues. Um, I don't know where you're coming from and things like that. So I don't take it. But the way the conversation, his comments kind of impacted the people and the culture, um, I found quite interesting. So I guess trying to digest this and figure out, you know, with how artists uh, play a role in these conversations, should all artists be a part of it? Should the general, is it more of a responsibility on the artists or for the general public as far as how we consume what they say about these important matters. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm not ignoring the question. <laughs> You're a professor. Think time is important. Think time is very important. Um, but I think the like immediate response is not, I mean, like, I don't expect them. I don't hold them up to the standard of being a savior for the people. That's too much. That's too much. That's too much stress. That's too much burden on anybody. You know what I'm saying? Um, and I wonder you know, like you were like, you know, Ty, like you were pointing out is that, you know, a lot of folks give their positions and concerns and you're kind of just like, yeah, but what about X, Y, and Z? You know what I'm saying? And I don't know if that's because I'm a scholar and like, you know, we've been trained to think about things from multiple (laughs) perspectives. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's that aspect of it. You know what I'm saying? Um, But I, I, I do feel like, you know, kind of pulling from Du Bois here a little bit, I do feel like art is propaganda. You know what I'm saying? Like if we're talking about Kanye, for example, um, the boy ain't been right since his mama died, but that's a whole different conversation. Uh, <laughs> I just feel like he didn't have adequate time to like grieve and really think through what that, you know what I'm saying? Like the impact of what that was. But if you think about like 2005 Kanye compared to like now Kanye, I mean, you know, one, um, he's grown since then. I'm not saying like in a, you know, soul food Sunday kind of way, but I mean like he's, he's grown up. He's, you know, aged since then. Maybe that's the best way to put it. Um, and I feel like, you know, even if you just look at his 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 album collection, you know what I'm saying? If you go from, like, that whole uh, the college dropout trilogy, you know what I'm saying? Um, there was something that was much more, it was, I don't know, it was fresher. It was, it was political, but it wasn't on-the-nose political. You know what I'm saying? It made you, like, enjoy the music, but also made you, you know, think about it for a little bit. And then you get into you know, my dark twisted fantasy and some of these other things, it was more so him trying to work through his own shit. Like it was more, I felt like those were more like personal things, you know what I'm saying? Um, And then, you know, now that he is Trump's BFF, you know what I'm saying? Him and uh, Kim Kardashian West are his BFFs now. Um, I don't know. I think it's interesting because I think the other part of that question that comes to mind for me is, you know, what these artists represent for white folks, because, White folks are just as invested in culture as we are. Some folks will probably say even more so. And to borrow from Greg Tate, they're invested in everything but the burden. You know what I'm saying? Um, so, like, where does the burden fall into this? So you put Kanye in conversation with somebody like a Kendrick, who isn't necessarily political in the way we think about it, but, I mean, like, to pimp a butterfly, um, and in particular, All Right, have become, like, the anthems. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you go to a protest rally, you're going to hear, we're going to be all right. You know what I'm saying? Um, and I think the gritty and the, the grittiness and the rawness of being able to articulate those frustrations and anxieties about being um, black and brown in America um, comes through in the music in ways that uh, traditional forms of, of protest, you know what I'm saying? Like letters and pamphlets and... Um, books, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? Um, They don't reach the same magnitudes as as the music does. And I think that that's, you know, equally as um, 
equally as important. So all of that to say is, um, I think this is why studying hip hop is important. You know what I'm saying? And even more so, I think this is why studying hip hop and you're still invested in the culture is important. Like, I think that there is a distinction between, you know, as a professor, me presenting a class on Outkast, right? Um, and how Outkast articulates the landscape after the civil rights movement in the American South. Well, because I'm invested in it. I still live it on a day-to-day basis compared to if I'm just like, oh, I like that one song, Miss Jackson, or I like Hey Ya, and I'm going to just do a class on that. And you're fetishizing it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think that there's, it's a really thin line between, you know, presenting hip-hop culture as a serious form of inquiry about social issues and concerns then it's popular, it'll fill my class and I can teach it. Like, I think that that's a really thin line that we're still trying to navigate and it's becoming increasingly um, a concern because it's like, oh, okay, all these things are happening in hip hop, I can teach this class on it, but then you never come back to the class again or you just never let the class evolve itself. So yeah, I don't know, it's a little bit everything. <laughs> I, don't know if I'm, I don't know if I made sense, but it's like, it's a little bit everything. Yeah. The- there's only a couple of things that I would really add to that. Um, you know, just funny enough, last night I was thinking about, um, you know, Dave Chappelle's joke about MTV's, I believe, 9-11 coverage when he's just like running around the stage being like, where's Jaw? We're about to get Jaw roll on the phone. Where's Jaw? And I think kind of that speaks to what you were talking about, Ty, as far as like artists being forced into becoming like role models in that particular scenario. And that isn't good for anybody because it typically lends itself to really boilerplate boilerplate responses that don't really add a whole lot to the conversation. And and I'd have to revisit, you know, the comments um, to get the full context. But I believe that when ASAP Rocky said that, you know, Black Lives Matter doesn't touch him, that might have been another example where, you know, it's just like, journalists felt like they needed to ask this artist of the moment, the topic of the moment, without necessarily considering, you know, how, you know, these events might interact with each other. Like, is there actually like a meaningful connection there? Um, so in that scenario, it's like, no, I don't think we should be calling draw rule for absolutely everything in regards to what's going on with political and social issues, unless there is something that like really touches him directly and he feels compelled to speak about it. I mean, that's the thing about art, right? Um, and like for the Washington Post, um, in shit, this was like 2018. Yeah. Um, I had talked to young Jeezy about my president and Jeezy's coming from a place where he isn't like a model citizen by, you know, the mainstream's, you know, ideals, you know, you know, this is the guy who said trapper die instead of voter die. You know, he hadn't, he had never registered to vote before. Um, before Obama ran for president the first time. Uh, But this was someone who really, you know, felt compelled to reach folks like himself who might have otherwise been totally disengaged from the political system um, to just say, like, look, we have a real opportunity here in our hands, and I feel that this could be really good. And I'm coming from a place of of empathy because I'm saying, like, listen, man, I never voted before and I feel compelled to vote for the first time. So I think it really just depends on, like, you know, if they feel compelled to, if they feel like an actual connection to the issue at hand, then I feel like, of course, you know, for better or worse, they should have the right to speak on it. Um, So I don't like what Kanye had to say about Trump, but I feel like in its, you know, in its basic fundamental level, it's like, you know, I can't really protest against that. Yeah, it 
completely makes sense. I was actually living in Atlanta uh, when President Obama was elected and just bumping Jeezy. Like, I remember that moment. It was amazing and powerful. So um, switching gears a little bit, um, we want to hear your thoughts about the current state of uh, female or women in hip hop. Um, I asked this because not too long ago, of course, Jermaine Dupree made headlines, you know, stated that, you know, women rappers are addressing the same topics that, um, rap, uh, stripper rap should be, um, labeled strap and, you know, et cetera. And that somebody was going to have to break out of the mold. And so as two people who follow the industry more closely than others, and you might even know Jermaine Dupree, what is your take on his comments about women in hip hop? Um, I, I, trying to, trying to be nice. Sir, <laughs> sir, um, I okay. This is me being ambassador, like okay. I I don't agree with his comments. <laughs> um, second of all, how you know what stripper rap sound like if you ain't been in the club? That's the second part of it. Um, but yeah, I just you know, first of all, it's 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 a problem because. You know, granted, Jermaine Dupri is significant to Southern hip-hop and hip-hop in general. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not trying to take that away from him. However, I do find it problematic that you feel like you can say that this is what it is and then expect everybody to take it as gospel, when clearly it's not. Um, so, you know, in terms of where the direction that women in hip-hop, particularly in Southern hip-hop, because a lot of the acts that are coming out now are from the South, um, it, it speaks to not necessarily a, a, a renaissance, but like an empowerment moment where um, you have young women who are creating spaces for themselves and speaking their truths. And this happens, um, I mean, across the genre, but I mean, it's important because they're making room for themselves to speak to what their experiences are. And, and if being an exotic dancer is part of that experience, so be it, you know what I'm saying? But I'm like, if you're gonna throw darts and throw shade, at women talking about, you know, sex, then you also need to throw shade, equally throw shade to the dudes who are talking about sex in a much less dynamic way. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, so, I mean, like, you know, I, I, I've been really thinking about this and putting this in conversation with Tracy Sharpley Whiting with her book, um, Pimps Up, Holes Down, as well as Trisha Rose's book, The Hip Hop Wars, where she talks about uh, women in hip hop. And I think that because we either put women as, you know, it, you know, blame women for how we're seen in hip hop or we just dis, you know, disown hip women in hip hop in general, um, it, it, we need the gray space. You know what I'm saying? Like Joan Morgan talks about, you need the gray space to actually think about these things. And I think that these, uh, these younger women who are talking about um, doing twerk contests and being out with the girls and having a good summer and, you know, that whole idea of the hot girl summer. Um, I wasn't a hot girl this summer. I was just hot. You know what I'm saying? So <laughs> <laughs> there's like that aspect of it. Um, on the one hand, I just feel like older folks need to just sit on the porch and let these young folks do their thing. Like, I, I really feel like that. Um, and we can't like we can't compare them to what older women MCs did because the timing is different. The the way that the music is listened to is different. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and we need to take all those things in consideration before we try to you know put them in this pigeonhole 
that no longer or increasingly is no longer existing. Yeah. I mean, basically all of what Regina said. I mean, there's only a couple of things I would really add there. Um, I think the first thing is that by Jermaine Dupree commenting on the state of women in hip hop, his comment reads to me like somebody who it, it it's always what happens when there tends to be more than one female hip hop artist. You, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like right now we're in a period where there are more female hip hop artists on the Billboard charts um, than any other year in this past decade. And the way that people tend to reckon with that is really interesting because all of a sudden it's like. Uh, the status quo is completely changed and the status quo gets really offended by that. You know, I'm, I think the way like when Jermaine Dupree tried to say that all these female rappers sound the same and that they should be quali- called stripper rap, they should be qualified, they should be called strat, which is a first of all, that's just not creative. Um, but he wasn't really you can really tell that he isn't really engaging with the music as somebody who is a decorated music producer should be. I think anybody who has a critical ear would be able to like distinguish like, you know, a Cardi B from a Rico Nasty, from a Megan Thee Stallion to, you know, all like, you know, a Sweetie, a Light Skin Keisha, like what's even, what's remarkable is that like all these folks sound very distinctly different, perhaps even more so than some of like the male trap artists that are coming out today because, you know, Young Thug's got clones out here, Lil Wayne's got like, multiple, multiple sons. Um, so that was, I think that was like the first level of offense to me, which is like, he's not even like really engaging with this music. And the fact that he then decided to like hold a contest to see like, okay, well, which female rapper is really going to catch my attention really showed me that he just hasn't been paying attention, like period. Like he has noticed a trend. He was asked to comment on it, but he hasn't really engaged really critically with that. Um, and the only other thought that I had was just like, I was really sympathetic to Cardi B who did respond to Jermaine Dupree, which was, I mean, her comments were basically like, you know, damned if I do, damned if I don't, you know, she had talked about how, you know, when she came up with Be Careful, which, you know, sounded completely different from Bodak Yellow and sampled, you know, Lauren Hill, that the backlash was kind of swift. And I remember even just like amongst my girlfriends, folks were like, oh, this isn't exactly what I wanted from Cardi B, like at this particular moment. And, you know, like, I think that puts women in a really tough position because there may be a whole, there may be more uh, female hip hop representation out there, but they're still being held to like these incredibly stringent standards that might not necessarily allow them to do more than just like shake their ass, which like, again, is something that I really love, but they're still having to be hold to the, held to these really stringent standards and they're still having, having to answer to them. Um, so that wasn't exactly the most coherent response, but like, I mean, in short, like, you know, fuck that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> put it out there. Yeah, no, 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 for real, because I think, um, you know, yeah, it's just like, like you, like you mentioned, like, I feel like for some reason with uh, women in hip hop, it's like they want to pit them against each other. I mean, the whole, I feel like the whole Cardi and Nicki situation really didn't have to happen, but I just feel like the way the narrators respond, it was just like, you know, gotta be in competition, can't coexist, only could be one. And, you know, we don't see that when it comes to males in hip hop. I mean, people like, you know, J. Cole and Kendrick, whoever gets mentioned all the time, but no one's ever making them compete against each other. And then, you know, I always, 
you know, feel that other people get left out because, yes, people like Cardi and Nikki and now Meg Thee Stallion and others are making a name for stuff. But, you know, I always I've listened to artists like Rhapsody, who uh, is, is a great lyricist, is a great rapper who is Grammy nominated, but gets kind of left out of these conversations, too, because it always focuses on the folks just like Cardi and Nikki and, and the like who do get the most attention, maybe because of how our society is set up um, in a lot of ways and, and, and what how we consume things and what gets more popular but I think, yeah, I think it's time for, I guess, the consumers and general public to broaden our conversations and discussions on, like, you know, women in hip-hop and, like, yes, they can coexist. They don't have to be competitive. They can work together. And there could be multiple variations of them in hip-hop just like for we sure. see. I mean, the other part of that, too, is let, sure. let women talk about women in hip-hop. Like, you, you would think that yeah. that shit is so simple, but it's not. Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I think that's one of the reasons that I, you know, I really enjoy doing Bottom of the Map is that I don't have to fight for my voice to be heard because you know it's it's my show one but two <laughs> I mean like it's you know when I when I listen to other podcasts or other commentary on hip-hop most of the time it's male dominated and I just like roll my eyes because I'm like okay you made some good points but you also didn't think about x y and z and I really wonder how much of this conversation would be shifted if it was women who were who were leading the conversation about women in hip-hop you know what I'm saying um and also in terms of like Rhapsody, man, rap is is ridiculous. Like I, I love her. You know what I'm saying? Um, and also that's unfortunate that folks kind of forget her or put her in her own separate category because she is a woman MC. You know what I'm saying? And ultimately the other part of that that comes to mind is that when we think about black women, particularly black women in popular culture, sexuality is the number one lens to do that. You know what I'm saying? And if you don't um, project sexuality in a way that is immediately recognizable then folks want to put you in a different category or write you off altogether and I think that that's like why this 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 conversation about women in hip hop needs to be further complicated you know what I'm saying um, and I and and there, you know, with for every Rhapsody and Jean Grey, you know what I'm saying? Um, you know, you have the folks who are presented in these particular types of ways. And the other part of that that comes to mind is that the sexuality aspect of it or the hypersexuality aspect of it gets folks in their feelings because, you know, it's like it's, it's like a form of currency. You know what I'm saying? Like it's how you how you spend, how you invest in a particular artist. Um, and that's unfortunate that that's only extended to to women because if sexuality was a part of like a lot of the male rappers out here, we wouldn't be invested. Period. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> be like, oh, that's unfortunate. Um, <laughs> but I just wanted to like, I just wanted to add that that aspect to it. In addition to everything that you said, Ty, but also like, you know, can women talk about women in hip hop? I didn't mm-hmm. think that that was such a revolutionary idea, but apparently, it's still a thing. Um, and that's one of the reasons that you know these types of conversations stand out. Y'all see why I need a co-host? Especially one as brilliant as Regina. (laughs) Case in point, right there, right there. Both of you have been so insightful throughout this conversation, though, so, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, For sure. Um, You know, I guess uh, one one of the questions that I know me and Daphne have had on this conversation and, you know, I've had casually with friends as well has been, you know, it's kind of evolution of, of hip hop. We know hip hop has evolved since its beginnings until now. Uh, but, you know, in more recent conversations, probably within the past few years or so, there's been a lot of dialogue centered around hip hop, younger hip hop artists and this idea of, you know, kind of the loss of lyricism in some instances and mumble rap and taking a big hit in a lot of ways. I mean, even not too long ago, you know, Blueface saying that he's one of the top lyricists 
out um, and there's a lot of controversy around that. And so, you know, I kind of want to get your thoughts on some of this this particular form of, of, of hip hop. You know, me, I guess kind of the educator in me, I kind of think of things more contextually. And I feel that oftentimes when you talk about the youth and students, you know, they can we're oftentimes work with what the tools they have. And I feel like so many of young black folks are coming from, you know, severely oppressed situations where the education system may have failed them. And so I just simply think of sometimes it's just as a form of, of literacy and kind of using the tools of what they know. They make great, great beats. They make great hooks. And so should we expect, you know, top lyricism um, from everyone or, or typecast or, or, you know, I guess ostracize this particular group of folks? Um, so I'm just curious to know your thoughts on this whole conversation around mumble rap and, and these these younger artists. I mean, I feel like this is more Chris's lane, but I just want to say, you know, two things. One, um, I also feel like, you know, I know my I know my limitations. You know what I'm saying? Like the way that I theorize and think about outcasts is because I've been theorizing and thinking about outcasts since I was a teenager. You know what I'm saying? Um, I, I can't do the same thing for a future or amigos or a blue face. I, I don't know if I want to do it for a blue face, but um, <laughs> But I mean, like, there, but there are, like you said, there are younger folks who are coming up and I often challenge my students. I'm like, you know, just calling yourself a student is a cop out. You're a scholar in training when you when you enter this classroom. You know what I'm saying? So you need to be able to um, have these types of conversations and allow them to have these types of conversations about the music that they are um, listening to. But I mean, like, I'll be I'll immediately be the first one to tell you, like, you know, uh, the other reasons I really enjoy doing bottom of the map is that Christina and our producer, Floyd Hall, um, they keep me off the porch, so to speak. They're like, nope, you need to listen to these people, this, this, and this. And I'm like, <laughs> sometimes I'm kicking and screaming, you know what I'm saying? But for the most part, you know, I, I, I can't call myself a Southern hip hop scholar if I don't know what new artists are coming out of the South or just like hip hop in general. So those are my two things. It's like, you know, there's, there's a new wave of folks who are coming up behind us that I really hope will take the reins in terms of how to think about and contextualize this newer generation of artists. Um, and also just, you know, be willing to, to at least listen to why these artists are so popular. Um, the feeling I have about that is this. Um, mumble rap may be a comparatively new label, subgenre, whatever you call it. But I feel like it's a continuation of how the mainstream tries to degrade Southern rap by saying that they don't understand it. You see what I'm saying? Like, um... I think to me, like, especially when Future kind of gets pegged into a mumble rap, they're really just sort of reckoning with like his own dialect. And they're using that as an excuse to not really engage with the music. And I feel like even though Blueface is an exception to this rule, more often than not, that gets pegged toward like Southern artists. And I feel like it's a continuation of how their lyricism consistently like gets degraded compared to an East Coast or a West Coast hip hop. Um, I don't think, sure, it would be trickier, I think, to maybe like annotate some of the musicality that happens with like a future or Amigos or Blueface, you know, than, you know, somebody like a Nas or a Jay-Z or somebody like that. But then on the other hand, like my general feeling about it is this, it's like, if you are listening at all carefully to the music, you know, like, I mean, it's like this, like, I feel like there's no way that you could call future rumble, mumble rap and say that you get half the subliminals that are in East Coast, embedded in East Coast hip hop. You know what I mean? Like, 
at that point, if you're going to be so reductive about what the music has to offer, then I don't, I just don't trust your opinion on hip hop period. I just don't think they are trying to listen or trying to engage, um, when they're deploying that insult. Mm, I, I, she's like, I'm, I don't even want to hear it. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> no, but no, I think it's, I think it's really good. But yeah, um, I agree with you as someone from the South, um, like I'm very I feel like I've been very careful about like maintaining my, you know, southern dialect, my southern accent. Uh because I know sometimes it is judged in ways that, you know, other accents and dialects are not and I want you to respect it. Um and you said not reduce it to like, oh, I I don't understand, it's not important. So I appreciate that. Um, but speaking of like the evolution of hip hop and uh fusion, like Recently, there's been like this fusion of like hip hop and country and you got the get up by Blanco Brown. You got Lil Nas X. Um, do you think this is just a fad? Do you see this going somewhere? What do you think of it in general? Um, I don't think it's a fad at all. Um, the really interesting thing about like country rap is that those two particular genres have been engaging with each other for far longer than an old town road. It's just been kind of more of an underground phenomenon or something that has kind of been frowned upon. Um, there's a lot going on in Georgia in particular, um, but there are also folks like a cowboy Troy who are really important because I think for the most part, when you think of country rap, you tend to think of white folks, right? Um, and of course, like, you know, nothing wrong with Bob Sparks or anything like that. But uh, that's how it's that's how country rap has historically sort of been regarded. Um, you know, it's just sort of like an underground phenomenon where you had to drive your pickup truck out to the show that's going to be decorated with like Confederate flags and things like that. Um, I will say that, of course, that isn't to take away from the success of Old Town Road. I mean, in fact, like the mainstream success of Old Town Road has just been so remarkable to me, but I think it really, I, I really appreciate it for how it sort of drew attention to a, to a culture that wasn't necessarily new at all. Like just the very image of a little Nas X with a Wrangler on his booty and all that, you know, um, really called attention to the fact that not all cowboys were white. And, you know, if it took a, you know, a young kid from Atlanta to remind folks of that American history, then we're all the better for it. Everything that she said. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, you know, this has been a great conversation, you know, answer having you guys on have, answering a lot of the questions that me and Daphne have tried to answer throughout the time of this podcast. Uh, but before we wrap up, you know, we'd like to give our guests an opportunity if there was something, you know, you felt that was important that we didn't address or that we might have left out that you want to speak on. You know, here's a here's a time to, I guess, bring that up. Um, I guess my final soapbox moment is kind of uh, riffing off of what Daphne, what you're talking about earlier. I really really just can't wait to see what comes out the South academically and scholar-wise about hip-hop. Um, you know, there's, there's right now, I can probably count them on my hands who's doing Southern hip-hop scholarship, but I, I really just hope that folks will take the opportunity, especially if they're from the South, to represent that they're from the South um, and, and speak it and, you know, speak their truths and, and hopefully continue to further complicate this conversation that we're having about region and hip-hop and the direction that hip-hop is going to go in. Um, well, first, let's do the shameless plug moment. Um, so bottom of the map is still in its first season where we have passed the halfway mark. That is awesome. But of course, you know, 
subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, please, because we have been working so hard on this damn thing. Um, and the other thing I want to stress is that I think one of the bigger reasons why Regina and I are so passionate about doing Bottom of the Map and just doing this work, period, um, is because of just how vast the South actually is. So if we're going to talk in terms of hip hop, you know, when we typically talk about East Coast hip hop, usually New York is most representative of that, right? When we talk about West Coast hip hop, typically we're talking about California. The, not the burden, but like the, the you know, the facts about like cataloging the South and its music is that we're having to account for a whole damn ass region. Like at the very beginning of the brainstorming process, you know, Regina and I started a Google Doc um, where we were just, you know, brain dumping, putting topics in there, things that we wanted to talk about. And I remember at one point I just put a list of Southern states because I was like, we need to make sure that we don't overlook this. And that is a conversation that we continue to have with every single episode, you know? So I think that's just really important is that when we are having these conversations about Southern hip hop and, you know, how that reflects like a contemporary South, we are talking about multiple states and we're talking about multiple Souths. Um, thank you all for coming. Um, I'm happy you plugged the podcast. How can people listen? What platforms are you on? How, you know, where should people follow you? We on all the platforms. <laughs> <laughs> um, Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Play, Stitcher, um, Spotify. I think we're on Spotify. Um, yeah, um, you know, if you want to holler at me directly, you can always, you know, hit me up on Twitter at, at Red Clay Scholar all together. Um, or you can email me at www.redclayscholar.com. Um, and the only other thing is that on Twitter, we, at, we are at BOTM Pod. That is the podcast, at which I believe we are on for all social media platforms. And if you go to bottomofthemap.media, like you can subscribe to our email newsletter, where very helpfully, um, each with each episode, we provide like a syllabus on Regina's end and then a corresponding playlist like on my end. So, you know, as you're listening to each episode and you're like, wait a second, like, what was this book? I didn't get to jot this down in time because I was driving or this or that or whatever. Like we have all that information available to you. And great, great. We'll definitely be sure to plug all that information when we post this episode. So make sure you all, all the listeners, check out the links. We'll link it all to the resources and to the websites and the social media so that you can get easy access to follow what they're doing and follow their podcast. It's a really great podcast. I've listened to episodes and a lot of times y'all play music in there and I have me jamming in my office as I'm listening to the podcast. <laughs> Making sure I have to make sure the door is closed. I want to, you know, startle my colleagues at all. Um, but I appreciate what you all are doing. And, and, you know, just thank you for taking the time to come chat with us and be a part of our podcast and, and help our listeners out a little bit. Oh, man, we appreciate you for having us. And um, yeah, just continue doing things like this. We need spaces like this to have these type of conversations. So thank y'all. Yes, absolutely. And please don't be afraid to blast who run it in the, and you know, the hallways. You know what I mean? Like, people need to know <laughs> that you are here. Blast and if you book. It's true. To this day, probably the first day of class on Monday, they will hear a little bit of crime mob. So be afraid. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thank you. Yo, yo, Dev, what you think about the co-hosts of Bottom of the Bottom of the Map podcast coming to join us, Christina Lee and Dr. Regina Bradley? I think it was a, a fun conversation. How about you? Mm-hmm. I think they are both so awesome and insightful. And I'll have to say this 
conversation in the podcast is just meaningful to me as a Southern person, you know, who grew up on like the rise of crunk music, who, you know, can remember when Stank On You came out. Like, like this is the music of my childhood being from the South. So, you know, I just appreciate their insights. I appreciate them bringing this to the forefront. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I definitely appreciate it. I mean, and me from somebody who grew up in the Northeast, New York, New Jersey areas, you know, uh, it's funny because, yeah, growing up, the rhetoric in these areas were kind of like, you know, they'd be sleeping on the Southern Southern music or, or mm. trying not to respect it. It's true hip hop. But yet when we go to all the parties and everybody trying to get their dance on, we won't play no Jay-Z, <laughs> no Nas, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so, so like, yo, relax on that. You got to respect what they do. And, and to me, it's always been a Southern music in general, but Southern hip hop culture has always been just more fun, you know, mm-hmm. than than us Northern who try to be all serious and you know la la la. But nah, I'm not. I'm definitely not playing nobody from up here when when it's time to party. That's for sure. What's so funny is that so you know in the South or at least in my city. Friday nights, you either went to a football game or you went to a basketball game. And then afterwards, you like went to like a YMCA party or we had these little teen clubs. And I just remember like in 10 years, like teen years, you know, you would hear like knuck if you buck or like, you know, something. And like people would be just like, you know, thrashing themselves around like we were like in a rock mosh pit Mm -hmm. or something like that. It was just it was so fun. It was so fun. It was fun, man. That, that music just definitely, you know, you get the emotional vibes to it. And you get just have, you just have fun. It's all around. So I appreciate every bit of, of, of Southern music, Southern hip hop in, in general, for sure. You know, the interview also made me think about my time living in Atlanta and how I was a teacher, but like hip hop was just so a part of, you know, my experience there. Um, It was nothing to go to the grocery store, go to the airport and, you know, see Jeezy, see T.I. Like he would just like pop up at the club and be like, hey, y'all. It was really cool, but funny story. Well, first of all, they mentioned Sleepy Brown in the interview when I actually taught um, both of his children, but I taught his daughter for two years in a row. She like looped up with me Um, and she'll be graduating with me next year. She'll be finishing high school. And this was like second and third grade and like about to graduate high school. So I still think about her. Like she still calls me every now and then. That's what's up. Um, but also another funny story. So when I lived in the A, I lived near like this Walmart Kroger. Um, and I was going to the bank. There was like a SunTrust bank in there. And so I'm, I, you know, pull up, uh, walk up to the counter and there's young jock. And, you know, he's like, hey, Miss Lady or whatnot. <laughs> I'm like, hey, you know. And, you know, he did get my phone number. But, you know, <laughs> it, it didn't work out. But the funny part was that he was like, oh, somebody disrespected me. You know, they, you know, were playing like I wasn't going to give them, you know, their money. So I got something for him. Um, I'm going to get uh, he I think he owed him like seventeen, eighteen hundred dollars. And he was like, he's going to get it all in pennies. He literally went to the bank to get seventeen hundred dollars worth of pennies. Oh it was God. crazy. I was like, are you for real? That's wild. <laughs> but yeah, it it fun times, fun times in yeah. the A. Mhm. being petty, and then I, I think I um I met when I was in Atlanta. I too met a uh, <laughs> hip hop artist. Uh, it was a. Uh, me. It was me and my brother and my best friend. Um, and we just you know. 
we we had a night of, of ratchetness before. Oh, good. <laughs> so we woke up the next morning. We were staying at, you know, one of my homegirls' houses. And then we woke up. He's like, damn, we need some we need some toothbrushes. So we like, oh, we got to go get some toothbrushes. So we got up early in the morning and we went around the corner to, like, CVS, get some mm-hmm. toothbrush. We went outside, you know. Then we were just, like, outside, sitting at the car for, for I don't even know why. We were just, like, drinking Gatorades and stuff, trying to just recover a little bit. And um, then we saw, like, this... Um, it was a phantom outside of CVS. We was like, mm-hmm. who, who driving this phantom? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. We were just sitting there talking. And then sure enough, the dude who was driving the phantom walked out of CVS. And it was a short little guy named T.I. Oh, God. That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> and then he saw us looking. And we was looking at him. He was looking at us. And, you know, he gave us a kind of head nod. Like, what's up? Hopped in his fan and took off. I was like, okay. You know, he was just out by himself going to CVS. Early morning run just like us. But... But yeah, that was funny too. It was like, oh man, we really you do really can run into people out here in uh in the A. And they know? be so cool. It ain't like, you know, a bunch of security. Like it they just be so chillaxed mm-hmm. about it. And they'll speak. Um so yeah. yeah. Yeah, so also like someone like Andre Three Thousand keeps up that Atlanta Southern hip hop culture all over the place too, because everywhere he goes, I see all these pictures of him popping up all over the country with his flute and people taking pictures, and he taking pictures where he just by himself walking around with this big old like, I don't know if it's like some kind of African flute or something he's been playing, but have you seen those pictures? Mm-mm, I have. Oh my god, it's funny. He's just like people are finding him at all random places at like Starbucks and airports or like at the park, and he's just there by himself with his glasses on playing the flute. Yeah. So. Andre 3000 is my fave. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nah, the Outcast is, like, epic all-time groups, not just Southern, just all-around hip-hop. Definitely yeah. the great and one of the greats. But I would say that's one thing I appreciate about the Bottom of the Map podcast, like, listening, especially to that No Justice, No Peace, you know, how they incorporate the music. You hear the sounds in the podcast, and um, that was really cool. Yeah, no, it's fun, like, fun production. Um, when I, you know, listening to them, I'm like, I wasn't expecting, like, the music to be played, and, and then their an- analysis with, you know, the certain lyrics and songs to go along with whatever topic they're covering. It makes it, like, brings a fun element to, you know, their their dialogue. Um, and again, like, you know, you'll find yourself, when you listen listening to it, you know, you know, jamming, like, oh, this is my joint, you know. <laughs> and then, you know, sometimes you go back, like, you know, let me go listen to the whole song, because I got to... I got to hear this now. They gave me a little taste. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it's really fun. And like like you said, what I really appreciate, even when we had the conversation about Jermaine Dupree and his comments, is like, yes, like allow women to speak about women in hip hop. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's just very simple because Lord knows if we had a, a white man trying to talk about blackness, you know, <laughs> Get <laughs> oh, shut down we'd be up in arms like, who is you to tell me how to feel or what's going on in my culture? So it's the same thing when we talk about women and, and, and their place in hip hop. Let them have that voice and speak on it, um, you know, Mr. Dupree. Uh, and that's the way it should be. And, and, you know, that that was a real, real thing that she said. And although it was simple, it, it's pretty profound. You know what? Uh, That conversation also uh, made me realize or notice how the language around women in hip hop is changing. Um, And it's it's something slow, but it's just kind of like it used to always be like female, female. And I feel like broader conversations around gender is replacing 
female hip hop artists with like women in hip hop. And have you noticed that like change in language? Yeah, the change in language. Um, and yes, like you, you're right, more societal. And it's like trying to figure out oh, which which is the you know co- correct way to approach this to say it. But yeah, it's been more women in hip hop now than it has been like female in hip hop. But even I say a female and it's just kind of like I know there's like broader conversations about like not using it, but it's just kind of like I, I don't know. That's I guess that's how we've always talked about women in hip hop, female hip hop. Yeah. 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 yeah, In the past. Yeah. But we know better now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. But no, it it was fun. Anything else from the conversation that stood out to you? Um, you want to address? Um, you know, I just overall thought it was a good conversation. Um, and I appreciate the insights about, uh, how this, fusion between country and hip-hop isn't anything new it's just been underground and you know maybe i'll try to listen to a little bit more but i do love the get up it's a (laughs) dance you gotta go (laughs) you gotta go on youtube it's like a whole dance to it yeah i haven't seen this even like do the two-step and grab seen the video because at first like it was like this little video it looked like the dude was having like fun and it went viral but it's kind of like yeah okay, do the two step to, yeah do check, get it up. Out. <laughs> check it out practice practice on my own um but yeah no all around fun conversation make sure y'all go check out click the links in the post check out bottom of the map podcast follow them on instagram and twitter and all that good stuff um you know you'll, you'll learn a lot for sure because i just like i have and i'm sure you will too um other than that follow us on social media at bht podcast we are on twitter instagram and facebook you can also visit our website black and to keep up with all our latest content and if you feel the need you can also contact us through email bht podcast at gmail.com where you can hit us up about particular interviews content ideas if you like to be a guest questions what have you we're always responsive then go to um, itunes and review and rate us because that really helps us out so take some time to do that and then after you rate us share us with your friends share us with your family and share us with your enemies and continue to be the oppressor's worst fear if you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. <laughs>